freedom oh freedom oh freedom over me this is race capital with me Kalia Harris, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. It is clear to me that we have to wage a psychological battle on the right for black people to define their own terms, define themselves as they see fit, and organize themselves as they see it. Now the question is how is the white community going to begin to allow for that organizing, because once they start to do that, they will also allow for the organizing that they want to do inside their community. It doesn't make a difference, because we're going to organize our way anyway. We're going to do it. The question is how we're going to facilitate those matters, whether it's going to be done with uh, a thousand uh, policemen with submachine guns, or whether it's going to be done in a context where it is allowed to be done by white people warding off those policemen. That is the question. And the question is, how are white people who call themselves activists ready to start, move into the white communities on two counts? On building new political institutions to destroy the old ones that we have, and to move around a concept of white youth refusing to go into the army. We are on the move for our liberation. We have been tired of trying to prove things to white people. We are tired of trying to explain to white people that we're not going to hurt them. We are concerned with getting the things we want, the things that we have to have to be able to function. The question is, can white people allow for that in this country? The question is, will white people overcome their racism and allow for that to happen in this country? If that does not happen, Brothers and sisters, we have no choice but to say very clearly, move over or we gonna move on over you. Thank you.
Today on Race Capital, we are talking reclamation. Reclaiming the space that our ancestors built. Reclaiming the spaces that have been constructed as monuments of white supremacy. Because it is time. Time to tear down all of the symbols, structures, and institutions of white supremacy in our society today. Reclaiming the halls of the former city hall, loudly proclaiming that these are our streets, our say. Black youth have been coming out to speak up and reclaim the power to imagine and envision and build the future that they will inherit. Richmond has seen 26 days of rebellion, of the people uprising in defense of black life in our city and across the nation and the world. During that time, the demands have been clear. Reopen the Marcus David Peters case, defund the racist police, drop all charges against every protester, remove all monuments to white supremacy in the city, from Confederate generals to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Establish an independent civilian review board with subpoena power that is separate from the Richmond Police Department. And finally, release all of the names of Richmond police officers under investigation for the use of force misconduct. Listening to Governor Northam and Mayor LeVar Stoney yesterday, you would think that they haven't been hearing the people. The fact remains that we have been steadfast and consistent in our demands. So I ask, what community demands have been met by the city and the state? As of now, the answer is next to none. So when you ask why the youth are at the very halls of power that can meet these demands, reclaiming it in defense of black lives, I ask you, how long are you willing to wait for freedom? Because the youth aren't willing to wait. On Monday, we saw the former so-called City Hall in Richmond taken back and reclaimed Reclamation Square. This space was cultivated with the goal of Black liberation by any means necessary. What went from teach-ins, community building, and a planned political education movie screening quickly devolved into a police attack on the camp early into Tuesday morning. Today, we talked to some of the organizers of this space. Today, we reclaim the narrative. So welcome, friends. Thank you all so much for coming on to Race Capital today. So my name's Taylor. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm currently a senior at VCU studying uh, political science. Hi, my name's Angelica. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm currently a senior at VCU studying painting and printmaking and African-American studies. And as y'all know, my name's Naomi Isaac. I use the pronouns they, them, and I'm a student at Virginia State University. Welcome to the show. Thank y'all so much for being here. And just so y'all know, this is a Virginia Student Power Network takeover of Race Capital this week. So we are on the airwaves bringing student power straight to you. So y'all, Monday, yesterday, 
it was a little wild. There was some reclaiming going on. And there was a lot of other stuff happening as well. Can y'all tell me what was the vision of what y yesterday was supposed to be and what, what happened? So from my understanding of like everything that was, um, that we've talked about while organizing, like it was really just about the whole namesake of reclamation is just showing that we can be, we can be more autonomous and we can take that power into our own hands. Like we're not asking for things to be handed out to us anymore. We're demanding it. We will occupy, we can occupy um, spaces that we feel are not serving the people and not listening to the demands of the community that they so like quote unquote serve. And so it's really telling about what happened last night because the mere like idea of an autonomous space led by like black femme organizers is enough to keep them from wanting to leave us alone for a night because we weren't really doing anything unlawful. Like they said we were blocking traffic, but no one was trying to get through. And we were definitely like in a space like downtown that isn't really like, it doesn't really get a lot of traffic at a time there, there's basically no traffic. So it just kind of shows that like to, to them, it's not about, you know, the means in which you express yourself. It's about the idea of black autonomy specifically being a threat to them. And for me, I think definitely hearing over the weekend or weeks past the new chief of police talking about taking back the city this was flipping that narrative on them and showing them, you know, when we say whose streets, our streets, we really mean that um, and reclaiming power because I think over the past couple of weeks through the curfews and the National Guard and the Chesterfield County Police, the Henrico Police, all these different forms of militant groups occupying our neighborhoods, it was really important for us in this moment to let them know that we're still here and we're still standing and they're not gonna beat us blue. Like we will continue to raise our voices. Um, and so I think for me, it really was about reclaiming power. And I think we were able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering that this place is the city hall and just the location in general, it being this epicenter for city council to gather and dictate our futures and amend laws and is home to like the mayor of the city so that alone and what that says about that location and that's why i feel like it was so special that we reclaimed that space specifically is because that is where yeah these these laws are made that determine our futures and they're made without us so i feel like when we, when we go there to reclaim that space, we're reclaiming how we want to determine our futures and, and the processes of that and how we want to bring and building a whole new table. Not only is this about reclamation, but also recentering the narrative and kind of clearing out what the message is that we are calling the Richmond government, our local government, an illegitimate institution. We are calling the Richmond Police Department an illegitimate institution because the policies that they hold continue to legitimize white supremacy, which continue to legitimize our death and our poverty and generations of uh, trauma and harm. And so what we are saying is that we are done, like Anne said, we are done, you know, letting these people dictate our futures and dictate a cycle of suffering for our families and our siblings. Like we are done with accepting that narrative and that fate. And I think, again, just when coming to that space and showing out and really raising our voices and not being afraid if the messaging was going to alarm them, not backing away, holding our power for seven hours, might I say, was very powerful, at least to me.
Yeah, it was seven hours that we were out there doing all types of stuff. So can y'all talk to me a little bit about what did the Reclamation Square, you know, inaugural event, what did that look like? I think a lot about that specific day, the buildup and the working together. And I know that there were so many moving parts to make this action happen. And I don't know. Yeah, I think about that a lot, how we all, yeah, I don't know, show up for each other and like show up for ourselves and are showing up for a Black future. Yeah, had like so many amazing speakers, just everyone making a commitment to show up in whatever role that they're called on to do so. Um, and I don't know, like, yeah, just fully committing to that role because they know what is at stake here and seeing that and feeling that energy is, I can definitely appreciate it. Speaking to Angie's point about showing up, I think one of the greatest things that happened yesterday is that I saw folks really be present for the first time. This wasn't just about speaking at people. This was really about building community. And that's why the violence of what occurred later um, with the police is so impactful because this was really about building up our community and saying it's time for us to heal and it's time for us to envision what transformative justice looks like. It's time for us to start actually imagining what it looks like to be free and start to heal from these generations of just systematic harm. For me, it was just really impactful to see the, the speakers speak truth to power, to see them talk about decolonizing in a genuine way, to see them talk about the harm of not only the police department uh, here in Richmond, but ICE and CBP and the harm that they inflict on migrants. There was just so much power and so much truth spoken about the systems that are, that are working at play here in Richmond. And I think for the first time, a lot of people were hearing things that they thought kind of collectivized in language that made sense. We had a Black healing circle and we talked about, you know, what's brought you joy during this demonstration? How are we all envisioning freedom? How are we all bringing folks that look like us and experience life like us into the movement? How are we centering rest? And to just hear the experiences of all these Black and non-Black people of color in a space, just honestly just being so powerful and uplifting each other and also sharing some really intimate details and unpacking some, some of this trauma that we're experiencing, not only on social media, but when we come out to these protests. It was an amazing day um, that was set up and the energy of the crowd and the energy of the community that we built there was, is always going to remain very special. Several people were like, this place feels like home already. And that's incredible, you know? Um, absolutely. I wanted to speak to um, points that Naomi was saying. I think there was definitely, especially because um, that action had a lot of different moving parts and maybe things that we didn't expect, but we were still able to recenter ourselves and come back to why we were there in, a, in the first place every time. And that is to come together as, as community, especially in the healing circle. It just, it's like in, even in practice, it's, we're just seeking out what we need and that is healing and that is to share our experiences and tap into one another. Those, there aren't enough of those spaces that are curated for Black folk and 
non-Black people of color to gather together and pull strength from one another and heal and ex express their traumas all in the same space and it being an empowering thing. And it's also really amazing because each of us has such different experiences as Black folk and non-Black POC, but then also it still comes together and we are like collectivizing from all of that and still able to empathize with each other on an individual level and then apply that to the larger matter like at hand. I think we were also able to establish a really demanding a commanding tone at the beginning by making our guiding principle Black Lives Matter by any means necessary. Like it's hard to mix up the message there. Uh, and so I think everyone was really grounded by the principles that we established from early on that, you know, this is a survivor oriented space. So we're gonna do away with and oppose all kinds of gender-based violence that happens in our circles sometimes. This is a space where we don't police Black rage or Black joy. And I, and I think all people were really grounded in these principles. So it established an air of like, consent. Like anyone who didn't consent to the principles was free, were free to leave and did if they needed to. But everyone there was committed to the same values and principles. And I think that that's very strong. Yeah, and it, it really changes this vision of like, I think when people think of protests they think that it's always marching on the streets and that's the only thing that we do but to think of things like teach-ins as radical spaces where uprisings are occurring and where revolution is happening uh, and I think that we saw just how threatening that space was to the state and their very swift and violent action last night I know for me you know I, I wasn't there when the gas was thrown, I left within five minutes of that happening. And to go from like shaking my tambourine and cheering y'all on to hearing it's not safe here anymore. And subsequently hearing all of what happened and seeing it. And it just, this the space that we had cultivated, the reclamation space that we cultivated, it felt like that was threatening enough to to get this reaction from the police. And so that's something I'm still kind of working through even today. But I wanted to know what were y'all's thoughts on really the, the quick turnaround from phase one of Reclamation Square and what happened in phase two after hour seven? So it was Reclamation Square to a whole cop riot. That's what happened. We were about to watch a movie and, and that was threatening to them. You know, people were sitting, that was threatening to them. And so for me, it was just very triggering because the way that white supremacy infiltrates black joy is a very, it was like constant as a black person. It's like you just be chilling and then you hear that, you know, a person that looks like your brother got shot, one of your friends are locked up. The way that white supremacy manages to permeate itself throughout my life and throughout our lives, that felt like a manifestation of this. Um, and so, to me, it was just very hurtful to watch this space that we built up together on principles that we all collaborated and consented to, uh, on power dynamics that we all consented to, to watch that be physically disrupted by the police was more hurtful than the tear gas that they unleashed on us <laughs> shortly after uh, or right before. So it's like, it was just very painful. And even today, just going back and looking at it and thinking that there were middle schoolers out there, you know, folks who really saw this as a safe space that, and we created as a safe space in the way that they immediately tried to villainize and antagonize it and set it up. I don't know, just treat us like what? Like the enemy? 
treat anti-police brutality protesters like the the enemy. I don't know what kind of strategy that is, but that situation cemented to me the idea that the city is not committed to the safety of Black lives. And when they say officer safety first, I think the Richmond Police Department really holds that motto to their heart. And that was demonstrated yesterday. Yeah, I also left before it turned into what it did. However, Taylor was mentioning earlier, I feel like part of being in a body of a Black woman is like, you can't help but think like, we are these Black femme organizers and you can't help but think like, what what part of what we're doing provoked that response? Like Naomi's saying, just how white supremacy is permeating our individual lives and our collective gatherings. Like you were also saying, Kalia, I'm still trying to process and justify what 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 the strategy is behind that and, and what what the the pathways to that action to to do that to us was and it's especially because i have not again y'all correct me if i'm wrong i have not heard i've asked multiple folks who were there and i didn't hear any confirmed gas or um police brutality at um mdp circle and so that also is really, yeah, yeah it's, it's really hard trying to decipher this tactic. So I'm sorry, it was a lot of, because it, it is really hard to process and it's hard to, it's just such a direct attack, like metaphorically and obviously, literally. No, yeah. it's, it's really emotional. Like I've just been emotional all day because again, it goes back to that safety aspect. And that's, that's the whole foundation of abolition is the fact that black safety is not guaranteed. And so when we're gathering in this space to advocate for that, and they come and they they draw their rubber bullets on us i just it physically hurts to know that you know we are in a literal war or they see it as if we are in a literal war and they have all the weapons all the money all the resources and the law at their side and all we have is you know our movie projector broadcasting some political education and all we have is holding each other together and standing with each other. And, and that can be very powerful, but it can also be very emotionally taxing and exhausting. And again, just painful. It's just handling a lot of fear at knowing what is at risk and knowing still what needs to be done because we've all agreed that we do want black liberation by any means necessary. And so what does that look like for us and coming to that actualization and taking it full on and realizing that if this is the message that we're pushing, then we have to be prepared for the cops to riot. It honestly isn't just a moment. Like right now, this is about to be the last chapter in a long plot of ancestors working towards abolition. And it's really our duty to hold ourselves together and, and be strong against all the forces that are working to break us down and dishearten us. And it was really at least touching to see that when we discussed dispersal tactics, we tried to come together with decentralized organizing. So collective group consent and we were like y'all we have reclaimed this space and we've been holding joy here what do folks want to do to protect this space are we willing to leave or do we want to stand here and, and defend our joy and our healing and everyone voted to do to do the latter because it was that important and it was that touching and special to people and so i think there's power in that that we are all willing to defend our values and that we're starting to build up a collective group of people that are willing to do that every night if they have to. Yeah, Naomi and Ange, to your, your points, I think what I've been thinking through too is like the emotionally taxing piece of it, but the amount of thought that we had to put into just thinking about security and safety, emotional safety, and then 
you know, I got, I got a lot of questions, you know, why are there so many white people in these pictures? Or why are there so many white folks at what y'all are calling a black uh, protest? And I'm like, well, first of all, you clearly can't see who holds the mics. And second of all, there's a need. We see, we saw that, you know, at about 12.30, 12.45 last night, once unlawful assembly was called, there was tear gas and pepper spray bullets being thrown and shot at black and brown folks and who were there but a number of, of white folks to, to hold the line. And while there were folks out there, there is a need for more people to come out of their house and into the streets. If you're watching on, on live stream every night, your black and brown siblings and our white comrades getting shot at on screen and you're sharing it and perhaps sharing video with media um, and retweeting it on Instagram, maybe it's time to get out into the streets and put your bodies on the line because this is going to keep happening. We planned a day of teach-ins, a movie night, radical political education and community building, and that was enough to threaten the state and to bring upon the wrath of their violence. So if you see that happening, that should be a call to you to come out and join us in the streets and engage in this Black liberation work. And so I've, I'm talking to all of our listeners here who uh, you know, consume our content and, and retweet it and share it. We are calling upon you to, to come out into the streets to support the work that we're doing because we can't do it alone. We need all of you to put your bodies on the line. And it's also just a lot of erasure. I think people have selective seeing when it comes to these protests because who, which Black voices and which Black faces are you choosing to acknowledge? Right now, there's a trend that, you know, folks are just following and listening to the voices of a lot of cis Black men or a lot of, you know, capitalists like Black folks. We already have a cis Black capitalist in office who is making life worse for Black people every single day in this city. And so when you're going out to these protests, it's like, it's not enough to just be like, is there a lot of Black people there? I need to know if there are a lot of Black anti-capitalists there. And at our space, we had about 20 plus, at least, who were holding it down when we were still out there. And just, I think that's valuable. You're choosing to cut those voices out, but they are going to be our strongest voices and most powerful voices when it comes to taking on these power structures. So it's just very selective uh, when it comes to the way that people are acknowledging uh, Black, queer, femme, non-binary and trans folk who are out here actually pushing progressive rhetoric and are pushing the type of rhetoric that people like to retweet. So it's like, y'all have to be consistent. You, do you want Black liberation or do you not want Black liberation? Are you just going out here following Black people who are parroting the same harmful rhetoric that uh, white supremacists preach? Or if they're just out here saying things to, to get clout or get followers, like think of the content. What we did yesterday is develop content and people got like a whole sandwich when it came to what we were able to build. They got skills, they got community, they got healing, they got entertainment, they got fed. So it's like there needs to be more than just coming and supporting Black people. Okay, have a type of Black person that you're supporting and let it be anti-capitalist, let it be decolonial. Just support Black people who are out here advocating for the community and are not out here trying to posture themselves as leaders right and support yeah. black youth right yeah. like there's folks that are out here planning and doing this work and 
saying that there is a diversity of tactics that we will have to use to achieve the goals that we've set out. Youth that are saying that our demands are the community's demands. And that is so powerful to me as someone that is merging into my, I don't know what comes after being a youth, but emerging Mm -hmm. and to see like the power of what y'all are building and bringing together. That's everything to me. I just wanted to follow back up with what Naomi is saying, especially I feel like as far as people having selective sight, I feel like it just speaks to how Black femme queer bodies have been constructed throughout time and we're still seeing it and we're still seeing it play out in real time even in spaces of black liberation rather how we're rendered invisible as opposed to constructed up or built up to be seen yeah i feel like there's just so there's so many biases to consider and there's so many there's just so many different histories that still play out and speaks to our individual experiences again and um yeah not all Black folks are really working for all Black folks. Yeah, especially when it comes to erasure, I'm going out of my mind having to get people to acknowledge that I am non-binary and I demand they them pronouns because they want a girl boss, which is like just so many things wrong with that that do not align with my personality. But they're constructing the image that they want to see in so many ways when it comes to these protests. They're constructing what the narrative is by focusing it on Monument Avenue and making it seem like Black people just want justice um, from symbolic racism. They're constructing it in the narrative of making it look like, you know, it's the revolution will be led by cis Black men. And they're constructing it in the narrative of saying that there's no queer or trans or gender non-conforming folks, Black folks that exist. And there, there's so much erasure that's happening. And I can already see people trying to type up their history textbooks and, you know, literally correct history to, to fit what they feel comfortable with. I think why this space is a little threatening to folks is because these are Black radical youth who are demanding that people become uncomfortable so that we can get free. And obviously that's not the sexy thing to do. That's not the easy thing to do. So people don't want to support it, but it is the necessary thing to do. And that's why we're out here advocating and demanding that people do it each and every day. We all have to get uncomfortable with the cop in our head and the ways that we police other people and the ways that our institutions condition us to police other people. And that takes a lot of day by day work and accountability and studying and research and, you know, just so much labor that is necessary, but folks don't want to do it because it's not what's comfortable. Uh, And so then again, they don't want to support our message because it's something that makes them uncomfortable with themselves. But that just means that you're growing, baby. (laughs) Yeah, I think what Naomi's saying is about folks dismantling the cop in their head and the construction of Black queer folks that they have or rather rather their idea that they don't exist and so really like dismantling that takes day by day work and Naomi was saying and to finally let black queer folk and black queer like non-binary folk construct themselves and render themselves as what they want and yeah and basically reclaiming an identity still when we talk about reclaiming too i think i don't i i don't identify as woman but i think reclaiming the label the moniker of angry black woman has been come like sort of a rhetoric or a politic of this movement because people shy away from that but it takes power and strength to be angry and to be confident about it and to be assured about it. And sometimes you have to be angry. We've tried saying, yes, Massa, we gonna just ease on down the road to you. 
decide that you want to give us rights, but obviously that hasn't worked for 400 years of people pushing that, trying to push that predominant narrative and trying to silence more radical narratives. So now radicals are like, y'all had your time. We are ready to demand things that are owed to us and have been owed to us for centuries. So reclaiming that, just reclaiming Black rage as a power structure um, and an infrastructure for liberation has be, become something that was developed in this space. Yeah, like that was part of the reclamation. We can play our music on the, the steps of Reclamation Square and, and pitch tents there and stay out and speak to the power, you know, reclaim it. Another big part of, of yesterday was the fact that there was a city council meeting happening during the, the beginnings of Reclamation Square being reclaimed. So there were actually community members that were inside, including, you know, Princess Blanding, Richmond, RTAP, that were in there speaking during public comment as we're outside raising the voices of the youth and, and building that power both in and outside. And so when people are like, oh, why did y'all go and do Reclamation Square? That was a political act. There was a city council meeting occurring. There were decisions that could have been made in that meeting there yesterday. And that's why we were outside. So that's another part to me of the, the things I've been reflecting about today is like, our rights were just thrown out the window last night. The First Amendment is not just the right to free speech, but also the right to assembly. And so the fact that us as Black radical youth came together to educate one another and build community with one another in that space, and we assembled and we stayed there, you know what I'm saying? Like, that was illegal in Virginia, here, Yo, where my ancestors bred. You know what I'm saying? That was, it was just such a ancestral harm. I don't even understand how this anyone can pretend that quote unquote unlawful assembly does not contradict everything in this stupid ass constitution that people like to idolize. Unlawful assembly is an oxymoron in, in a constitution that guarantees your right to assemble. So right off the bat, that was BS from the cops. And then when we want to talk about unlawful assembly, what is more unlawful than a group of pigs gathering to shoot rubber bullets and war weapons and chemical weapons at unarmed students, some of which were in middle school? What is more unlawful than that? Let alone they had no mask on when they was out there. Wasn't that, um, like, ain't that supposed to be unlawful? And so it's just crazy to me that people try to pretend like, yeah, this might make sense, you know, like, maybe they shouldn't have used tear gas, but y'all were out there illegally. It's like they create laws to trap us into illegality when they don't want us to do things to gain rights. And that's what folks need to understand. It's all criminality is constructed by the power structures so that you don't gain rights and so that they don't have to deal with problems and they don't have to deal with your public safety or health and they can help people gain capital and power. This is the whole foundation of, of the police and I think people need to realize that and really actually understand the intentional harm that is that serves as the infrastructure for our criminal justice system as a whole. This is all about constructing and criminalizing the Black identity. 
Yes. Yes. And so something that I, I've been re- going back to, I wrote my thesis about activist burnout and sustainability in Black Lives Matter, gender nonconforming, and women activists. And a big part of burnout for us is the criminalization of our activism. And so we saw that last night where we gathered. We didn't even have to, you know, go to HQ um, and post up there. We just had to go and occupy space at Reclamation Square. And that was enough uh, to, to, like you said, bring the war weapons. And so um, I've just been thinking about that role of the criminality and trying to tire us out and to slow us down so that we spend, you know, a bunch of time on jail support work. And, you know, we're, we're staying up all night, making sure that people are home safely and things like that. But that all comes out of our rights being uh, violated when they told us that our assembly was unlawful. And that continues to happen. This is day 26. And so this isn't a new story. This is something that's been going on for weeks at this point in Richmond. The way that this movement and the narrative has gone so conservative over the past couple of weeks and really diluted the narrative, it's led to us really having to work overtime and that's emotionally draining. And I think that that means that we really have to get to strategizing again. And I think that not falling pressure to the way that they want us to really come out every single night because you know that they have reinforcements out like out the wazoo they have reinforcements from the national guard they have reinforcements virginia state police chesterfield county police and rico police bcpd so they have all they're never going to get tired at this point they're not going to get as tired as we are going to get with the same 200 people so this is up to us and it can be very creative and empowering and uplifting for us to really strategize what it means to wear out the police and make their lives a living hell the way that they make our lives a living hell. It could be really daunting for us to visualize what the future looks like because nobody's done the future yet, but it can also be really empowering for us to see all the faults and to see all the toxicity and say, no, that's not the life that we want for ourselves and no, that's not the life we want for our our future descendants. And so we're going to consciously and intentionally and daily make make it a commitment to change it. And that can just look like, you know, the ways that we decide to organize ourselves physically at protests. That can look like the ways that we decide to support our community during these protests, like doing childcare um, and, and doing that for free for demonstrators or for folks who might be having to work during um, coronavirus. Like just all these things and all these systems of care that we're establishing, it's so empowering to see. And I can't wait to see what else that we take our minds and take our time and our uh, to visualize and structure and reclaim right it's time for us to take uh you know it's not just about tearing down the systems of harm but like i was saying outside of the jefferson a few weeks ago like it's also about us building it back up and so we know that our communities have built and created and cultivated systems of care because we know that this, the police don't keep us safe Uh, and the systems that be don't take care of us. And so we have built the foundations for these systems that we're advocating for. And yes, it can be so daunting when you don't have uh, 
the that connection to the work that our ancestors have done for so long to all the black youth that are listening know that there are radical black youth in this city we are our arms are open wide and we are here to share with you what we know of what our ancestors have done and to build this future with you together as we work to earn the respect of the future generations that come after us. Thank you so much to Taylor and Naomi, of course, for joining us today on Race Capital. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM. Richmond Independent Radio. Pictured you this way. It's talked about all over the world. What uh, what 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 do you see as the meaning of the term revolutionary? Well, there's no single simple meaning of the term revolutionary. A revolutionary is a man or a woman who is a lot of things. But basically, the revolutionary wants to change the nature of society in a way to promote a world where the needs and interests of the people are responded to. A revolutionary realizes, however, that in order to create a world where human beings can live and and love and be healthy and create, you have to completely revolutionize the entire fabric of society. You have to overturn the economic structure where you have a few individuals who are in possession of the vast majority of the wealth in this country that's been produced by the majority of the people, and you have to destroy this political apparatus which, under the guise of revolutionary government, uh, perpetrates the most incredible uh, misery on the mass of the people. One of the interesting things about uh, the term revolutionary is the fact that people, so many people, see it uh, in the context of violence, that uh, revolutionary means violence, violence every day, every minute, at any given time, no matter what the circumstances. Uh, how do you view this, this 
this in the context of, of violence. Well, of course, that's part and parcel of the same attempt to separate and isolate revolutionaries from uh, uh, the people. Of course, uh, revolution does not mean violence in the sense that that's its defining characteristic. Yet there are uh, those revolution. who see it that way. Well, th yeah, and, and, and uh, that's uh, done in a very conscious manner to mislead people and to uh, 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 lead people to, for instance, equate uh, a progressive socialist revolution with uh, um, fascism. During the time that uh, I was out in the streets and speaking throughout California, I found it incredible how many people define socialism or communism as if it were the third way. Yeah. Uh, certainly, of course, though, in the history of revolutions, and not only socialist revolutions, but um, uh, bourgeois democratic revolutions uh, also. The American Revolution, for instance, you have had... Uh, um, the occurrence of violence as a means of seizing power from the oppressor. But why? Yeah. Uh, this is because the oppressors have failed to uh, um, acknowledge the fact that, that the people were right and that the people uh, had the right to control their lives and to control their destinies. And they are the ones who always initiate the violence. If people are serious about moving ahead to create a better society, then of course they uh, should not allow themselves to be deterred simply because uh, a few people at the top who are in possession usually of uh, monopoly on violence uh, decide that they're going to unleash all of their forces of repression to stop them. Angela, you would be interested. And to all those listening, our reclamation is just beginning. I urge you all to follow Black feminist youth voices who are on the front lines of this fight for Black lives. Today is day 27 of the modern day revolution in Richmond. What will you do to dismantle the myth of white supremacy today?
all types of amazing people in here today. But I just want to take a minute for the youth that have been intentionally organizing this shit. We've seen people arrested. We've seen people tear gassed. But guess what, y'all? It's time for us to come together and keep each other safe. So if we're going to keep staying out in these streets, we're going to have to organize. That means getting to know who's this beside you. How is it when they come at us like they did last night, we will keep each other safe? Yeah. And that means my white people. My white people. It's time to step the up. So if y'all have been out here for 17 days and you see my brothers and sisters and siblings getting tear gas and you in the back, get the to the front. Thank you to all of our listeners, new Patreons, subscribers, and followers. If you are new to our platform, check out our website, www.racecapital.com, to catch up on the latest episodes. As always, thank you so much for listening, and catch you next week right here on Race Capital. And to close out, I'll leave you with a conversation between the brilliant Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. And my concern was, I also accept this, that that danger is not, is not up to me to tell anybody how to run, you know. Mm-hmm. I can only speak as, as what I am. I'm a kind of poet. And if I'm a kind of poet, then I'm responsible from my own point of view to the people who have produced me, 
and the people who will come after me. Mm-hmm. You know, so that when the Holocaust comes, and it will come, you know, eventually, eventually, no matter how simple black and white terms may be today, life is not that simple. And sooner or later, if I do my work as I should do it, when I'm needed, I'll be there. You know what I mean? And the people listening, I know what you mean. Because I think the most important, I think that I do, because I think the most important thing for any of us is when, when what comes, or when what we know will come, comes, mm-hmm. that we have the strength to say, yeah, it came. That's right, it came. <laughs> you know? Okay. And I'm going to stay in my apartment and on 94th, and you'll be in Nice, mm-hmm. but we'll say, yeah. And we'll also be able to ride out the storm, but what is more important is not so much riding out of the storm for you, Nikki, and me, Jimmy, mm-hmm. you know. But in my mind's eye, there's always that kid. He's going to be here when you're gone. Oh, yeah. You know, and when I'm long gone. And my point of view is, it is about the children. It is about the children. We have to give the children something, which in a way was, after all, given to us, though we had to learn how to translate it. Because your kid will be moving in a very different world than the one in which I grew up, which you won't know anything about at all, or the world in which you grew up, which will be remote for him, and yet he comes out of it. And he's got to carry it much further than you or I will be able to carry it. He's got to have respect for it, but not be trapped by it. Precisely. You have to give, both give it to him and liberate, it, liberate him from it. Yes. You know. And I think that kind of thing has been lacking. Like, I think one of the nicest things that we created almost as a generation, and it wasn't us because Martin Delaney and those people were way before us, but just the fact that we could say, hey, I don't like white people. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. It's a great you liberation. Know, it was a beginning of, of course, yeah. being able to like them. Exactly. You know, exactly. Which of course it upsets them, but that's their problem. Yeah, but their problem, you know. their problem really is a, a kind of. Um, we were talking earlier before the show began about the kind of incomprehension in somebody's face. You t- trying to describe what is to you a very simple situation. Right. You know, like people don't like going to jail, and you and you see the man's face, and he looks astonished. What? People don't like going to jail, and then you, <laughs> and then you you pull back. You mean so? You know, does that really go on? And you, you live with this all your life. And what you watch is that he knows it, really. He doesn't think that you know it. He doesn't think anybody will tell him. And if it comes in, as we were saying earlier, if, if he allows that to enter into his guts, he's a very different person. He may, be, he, it may, he, it, he may explode. He doesn't know what will happen if he allows this apprehension of someone else's experience to enter into him. Right. Because he's perpetuating his experience. And this is, this, is, this, is, this is the crisis of the age. This is what Malcolm really meant when he said that white is a state of mind. Okay. You know. I won't argue that. Uh, on a certain level, because I tend to be um, parochial, <laughs> one thing, and I tend to care about Afro-Americans, which I would define as the sons and daughters of slaves and slave owners. But as we... Um, begin to try to deal, you know what I mean, with the world, we find that a lot of things break down. And we find that frequently a white face goes with a white mind. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, a black face goes with a white mind. Mm-hmm. Very seldom a, a white face will have a black mind. But we find the frequent situation is a white face has a white mind. Yeah, but you I... You know what I mean? I, I, no, I, so for the few no, mistakes that you would make, it's unfortunate. No, I know. I, <laughs> you know what I mean? To me, it's unfortunate. I, I wouldn't argue that at all. Yeah. No, I wouldn't argue that at all. No, I, it, it doesn't make any difference to me. As I said once somewhere, you know, that uh, a cop is a cop. 
Well, cops no. are white. And you know, <laughs> he, you know, and he may be he may be a very nice man, but I haven't got the time to figure that out. You know, all I know is he's got a uniform really and a gun. You know, and I had to relate to him that way. You know, <laughs> really that's don't. the only way to relate to him mm -hmm. at all. Because one of us is going to, you know, one of us may have to die. One of us probably. We'll